Welcome to Doctor Who, Far Too Much Information. A deep dive into Arcanaville, driven there by a love of a television series about travelling everywhere erratically and getting into trouble a lot. It is written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. Far Too Much Information is a podcast release that is generally exclusive to patrons at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. But as we celebrate Doctor Who's birthday, I thought I'd tantalise you all. A lot of the information you're about to hear was first disclosed in this podcast. Since completing that, however, I have discovered a few new bits and bobs, and so I'm going to stage a school reunion, because we know what happened in An Unearthly Child, the pilot, and An Unearthly Child, the broadcast version, and we know what happened to The Unearthly Child, Susan Foreman, and The Unearthly Child, Carol Ann Ford. But what about the earthly children? The original Coal Hill Kids, that illustrious bevy of non-speaking teenagers who augmented the corridors of Susan Foreman's alma mater. So welcome to this bonus episode of Far Too Much Information, which is entitled Class of 63. Now, first things first, let's establish that the children in the pilot episode are exactly the same bunch as those who appear in the one which was broadcast. Seven boys and girls, with their whole lives ahead of them, who stopped off to contribute to a bit of TV history on their way. There's the one who does the Kenneth Williams, oh yes, bit of ad-libbing in the corridors. The ice maiden, who gossips about him and raises her eyebrow. And then there's the boy next to Susan, as she struggles to explain herself in class to Ian. They all laugh at the teenager, and they swell the ranks of Ian's classroom, and they were all there, moving organic furniture in the debut instalment of the greatest TV show ever made. So who were they? Well, first we have to nail down exactly who it is we are looking for. So let's first identify them on screen in the fictional world of Coal Hill School. During the wonderful Quiz of Rassilon, a regular live occurrence that transferred to the online world during the pandemic and so brought together a large number of fans from around the world, writer Joe Lidster, for a round he set about an unearthly child, attempted to number the characters who appeared on screen in the episode and to do so gave the school kids names in order to help to identify them, as we don't actually know what any of them are called. And he did so so delightfully that I see no reason not to adopt the monikers he has bestowed upon them, uh, with his permission, of course. And so, in order that we all start off by knowing of whom we are talking, let's first identify the kids. Number one, girl with scarf. The first girl we see, with distinctive glassy eyes, who then chats to her mate in the corridor. Her mate is the memorable number two. Shady Sal, dark-haired, you wouldn't mess with her, arches an eyebrow like no one else, sassy lady, she knows all the gossip. Number three, Kenneth Williams, well it's obvious who he is, 
and he interrupts Scarf Girl and Shady Sal with his memorably nasal rhubarbery. We see him later sitting down and laughing at Susan. Number four, No Chair Steve. He is Kenneth Williams' mate, who is also at the back of a lot of shots when Susan is on the spot in flashbacks, but he's always standing. Number five, Fit Danny, a darker-haired boy, also in the corridor background and directly behind Susan when she is telling Ian in the science lab flashback that his experiment is pretty pointless. Number six, the lonely blonde, briefly glimpsed right at the back of the first corridor and later standing right at the back behind Susan in the classroom. She's generally right at the back and clearly very lonely. And number seven, Karen. Small, dark-haired, smiley, takes a book off Barbara in the opening corridor scene and is directly behind Susan in the classroom. So there we have it. Seven pupils. Seven names given to them by Joseph Lidster, writer of Torchwood and much else besides. And we have seven actors, according to the production documentation. And they are Francesca Bertorelli, Carol Clark, Mavis Ranson, Heather Lyons, Brian Thomas, Richard Wilson, not that one, and Cedric Showman. Initial research isn't especially helpful. The internet thinks that Francesca Bertarelli is the one who raises her eyebrow in a kind of, yeah, I've seen his winky and it's pretty tiny kind of way, Shady Sal. I used to think so too, basically because Shady Sal has a dark-haired, Mediterranean, fiery temperament thing going on. And in the olden days, having a guess was the kind of research we could all get on board with. As the internet so deftly proves by insisting that Francesca is Shady Sal, and, for that matter, that Zoe Wanamaker was an extra in State of Decay, and that Tony Robinson was the caveman actor in Adventure in Space and Time. Like Zoe and Tony, Francesca is not who cyberspace spuriously claims, and this podcast will never take Google or IMDb or Wikipedia, for that matter, as a primary source. Uh, that's not to say it won't get anything wrong, but by heck it won't be for want of trying not to. So, open brackets far, close brackets too much information hopefully reaches the parts spurious internet assertions are not welcome in. And we can prove that the internet is wrong in Francesca's case. Francesca is dark-haired for sure, and can be spotted in the back in the classrooms. But she's not the one with the distinctive beauty spot on her upper lip and the eyebrow rays that could emasculate a man at 30 paces. Francesca is in fact the one behind killer eyebrows, Shady Sal, who we see Barbara giving a book to afterwards when Eyebrow Girl and her pal move off. Come in number seven. Francesca Bertarelli is... Karen. 1963 was a good year for Francesca, as she had a prominent role in the Children's Film Foundation caper film Wings of Mystery, about a gang of kids using pigeons to foil a plot by thieves to get their hands on an alloy from Sheffield Steelworks. Francesca portrays a French girl, Yvette, and the piece stars Judy Giesen whilst Private Godfrey from Dad's Army and Doc Holliday from The Gunfighters also get a slice of the action. 
Francesca's is a decent speaking part, involving a French accent, and she gets a reasonable amount to do near the end of the picture. Francesca also pops up in Doctor Who again, in The Market in the Romans, Episode 2. You can see her with her back to camera when the Doctor and Vicky enter the marketplace, and later she is at the back of the throng looking quite cheerful from behind at the prospect of the oncoming slave auction, where, if she is looking carefully, she will spot her old history teacher for sale. Francesca was a model as well, and her sister, Andrea, was the girlfriend of future Genesis drummer Phil Collins when they were at drama school together, and later became his wife. So Francesca was, for a while, Phil Collins' sister-in-law. Phil claims that Francesca was a playboy bunny, but I found no further proof of this. I mean, I didn't look too hard, because I'm a gentleman, and I'm unsure where to find such records beyond a cursory internet search, which yielded nothing. Beyond that, I'm afraid I'm protecting my algorithms, but yours are your own affair. Don't blame me if you end up with mucky cookies. When I first looked into the kids, there was a Facebook page with ex-60s glamour models reminiscing about the past, and Francesca was mentioned, but that page seems to have gone now. What I do know, though, is that Francesca moved to Canada with her mother in 1974, and stayed. Cheska, as she became known, loved her games and a good cup of tea, and her favourite colour was red. Well, I didn't tell you everything I found out was going to be earth-shattering. Her son Dino, an artist, tragically predeceased Francesca two years after receiving a brain injury in an accident in London, from which he never recovered. And Francesca herself died of lung cancer in 2009, aged 65. So what of the other Francesca who the internet so incorrectly identifies? Shady Sal. Well, our slim, dark, shady lady is Carol Clark, born on June the 24th, 1949, in Wilsdon, northwest London. And she does look a bit Mediterranean, despite not being Francesca Bertarelli. As it happens, her mother's maiden name was Santinella, so there's some Italian heritage there, even if some way back, mum and grandad and great-grandad were all Londoners. Carol Clark's sister, Louise, was later one of Pan's people. Carol went to a convent school, and then she and Louise attended Corona together. They lived in Harlesden at the time. Although she later claimed she'd been a reluctant entrant to the world of showbiz, pushed into it by family, she sure as heck gave it a go. She also attended the Italia Conti school and soon became Carol Friday who was briefly a pop star in the mid-sixties. How did you begin? Well, I went to this stage school and I met this guy who was making records and he asked me if I wanted to make one, you see, so I said yes. So I recorded it, you know, and that was that. Reviewer Arthur Reeves, writing in 1965, just a couple of years after Doctor Who's debut, described the 17-year-old as a quality singer and someone who was trying to imitate Sandy Shaw. This is a shame. She has enough personality of her own without trying to follow anyone else. She sings sweetly and sounds neither mannish nor sex kittenish. She doesn't slap the allure on with a trowel, but it's there all the same, and frankly, 
She's the answer to this reviewer's prayer. Sitting there in blue denim, my heart was caught. But then I thought... She was noted for her striking orbs. In 1966, after a two-week tour of France and Belgium, it was noted that the European press had described her as having Europe's most beautiful eyes. In Brussels, she was voted New Star of 1966 by their largest morning paper, but was still telling the press that despite blossoming Euro-pop stardom, all she really wanted to do was be in the movies. She released a number of records, Gone Tomorrow, Show Me The Way, I Look Around Me, Everybody I Know, but despite the overtures of Arthur Reeves and a chance to sing in Las Vegas, she also received Worst Record of the Week from one publication, and she gave up on the idea of a recording career and concentrated instead on screen work. By 1969, she was still playing schoolgirls, but as the Sunday Mirror salaciously wrote whilst parading a picture of her in a bikini, As we can see, Carol, 20 next Tuesday, looks very grown up. In the film The Best House in London, a comedy satirising Victorian values directed by Philip Saville, her virginal schoolgirl Flora aspires to be a sex worker and is disappointed not to lose her innocence. She also guest-starred as a French girl in the Saint episode The Ex-King of Diamonds in 1969, appeared in an episode of Terry Scott's series Scott On, and did an advert for Chiclets Chewing Gum. She was multi-talented. She spoke French and Italian, and also learned Russian and Latin, as well as playing the guitar and being a highly skilled pianist. And she never quite turned her back on music. Indeed, one of the first things she did after stopping recording herself was to take a starring role in the video for Scher's Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves in 1971. To put Carol Friday behind her, she changed her name again to Caroline Villiers, named from the history books after Lady Caroline Villiers, whose mother, Caroline Campbell, the Duchess of Argyll, was much admired by Carol. Caroline Campbell had had an affair with King George IV. A name change, alas, wasn't enough to escape the ogling. On film, she said, at the tender age of 22, that she'd love a movie role where she didn't have to strip. Something my research depressingly tells me that a lot of young actresses say in the 1970s, in case you wonder just how grim it must have been to be an attractive young woman wanting to get into show business back then. The birthday suit, however, was not her natural one. Her daughter, Sarah Needham, tells me that Caroline was actually rather prudish and would even tell topless bathers to cover up. As she herself was covered in makeup in 1974, bitten by a vampire and turned into an old crone in Captain Kronos' Vampire Hunter, although the role of Petra was an uncredited one that seems to have ended up largely on the cutting room floor. But she was doing well in legitimate theatre. She did a lot of rep and had a brush with early stage success in Rock Carmen at the Roundhouse in 1970 and in the good old bad old days with Anthony Newley in 1972. And she's there on the original cast recording. 
She starred alongside Bernard Cribbins in Great Big Groovy Horse, a BBC TV musical in 1975. But the big news that year was her leading role in Thomas and the King, the most expensive musical ever put on, and the baby of acclaimed movie composer John Williams. And hers was one of the lead roles. Am I, am I John Williams told her that she had one of the best voices he had ever heard. Listening to Caroline singing Replay the Game, says her daughter Sarah, is so poignant it brings a tear to my eye. She had the most incredible voice. The musical was not a success, though, but that didn't stop her. In 1976, she did a massive tour with Ride, Ride, and in 1979 was in Calamity Jane with Barbara Windsor. And then came her big opportunity. She was cast by Cameron Mackintosh in a blaze of publicity to play Eliza Doolittle opposite Tony Britton and Dame Anna Neagle in My Fair Lady at the Adelphi Theatre in 1980. It was, says Sarah, a turning point in her life. But, unfortunately, she and Tony Britton did not get on, to put it mildly, at all, says Sarah. A shame, as her performance was going down a storm. She used to get these standing ovations, and she was wonderful. It really fitted her. She had this cockney heritage, but she was a woman of many different sides, perfect for Eliza Doolittle, going from the Cockney flower girl to the Duchess, observed Sarah. But sadly, Caroline left the production early, and her departure was a big thing. After that, she had a run on TV in Rushton Illustrated in 1980, showing her versatility in a number of crazy sketches and having a whale of a time. Her most sustained TV role, though, was two years earlier. And now, from marriage. As a hostess on Sale of the Century, which resulted in some slightly unhinged fan mail that Caroline took in her stride. But leaving My Fair Lady under, says Sarah, something of a cloud, meant that she drifted away from the theatre. She was always very nervous performing anyway, says Sarah, and she had even avoided the opportunity of auditioning for the title role in Evita because she had a hangover, which was good news for her close friend Elaine Page. But Caroline could turn her hand to anything. She got heavily involved in her brother-in-law's nightclub. She always worked very, very hard, says Sarah. And then she started a courier service called Busy Bikes, which had a number of high-end clients, including Harrods, who before the invention of the fax found her service invaluable. Sarah has memories of Caroline counting the pennies on the floor of their flat at the end of the day, but she grafted hard enough to send Sarah through boarding school, and she sold the company for a decent wedge. She was a Dell boy, really. Such a character, says Sarah, who discloses that the ever-resourceful Caroline then taught herself desktop publishing, making a living formatting documents for big companies. Anything she put her mind to, she'd get obsessive about, says Sarah of her mother, who sounds quite a remarkable character. Caroline sadly died in February 2019, about a year 
before I started looking for her. A lot of them succumbed to drinking and unhealthy lifestyles, says Sarah, observing that many of Caroline's contemporaries died relatively young, and she was the biggest smoker and drinker of the lot. So, sadly, we'll never know what she was raising her eyebrows or whispering to Scarf Girl about, because Scarf Girl herself isn't telling. Scarf Girl is Heather Lyons, who had been at the Corona Stage School from the age of eight. She was 14 at the time of An Unearthly Child, and other credits preceding Doctor Who were Armchair Theatre, A Man Out There, Mr Pastry, and The Chem Lab Mystery. She later changed her name to Kim Leon, and then Heather Wilcox. She has kept her hand in, and as recently as 2010 was helping out with a musical, a new one, staged at the Edward Alderton Theatre in Kent. Heather recalled of Doctor Who in an interview that year that it was quite revolutionary having something really new. There was nothing else around at that time like it. It wasn't a common occurrence to have programmes of this type. Of the hectic nature of production, she said, when something goes wrong, as it did in the pilot with the doors of the TARDIS, you see, I remembered that. We had to stop and break to fix it. It was a bit of a panic. We saw these doors opening and then partly closing and then cut. Heather also recalled that producer Verity Lambert gave all the pupils a once-over to see if we fitted. She also remembered that all of the extras, being from the same school, knew each other, so all mixed together quite happily. Heather is married. Indeed, she met her husband mere months after her work on Doctor Who and lives in Kent, but did not respond to my request for an interview. The lonely blonde is Mavis Ranson, who had already starred in a film, The Piper's Tune, with big-screen Susan Roberta Tovey, an adventure about some children trying to help an old man escape from Napoleon's advancing forces. But that was in 1962, and the following year she had to exchange her top billing for the movie for swelling the ranks of Coal Hill School uncredited. But she packed a lot in during her short career, with stage work at the Theatre Royal Bath and Bradford Alhambra, TV roles in Charlie Drake, Police Surgeon, Bootsy and Snudge, Zed Cars and Jane Eyre, and films including The Pure Hell of St Trinian's, The Day They Robbed the Bank of England, Gideon's Day, West Eleven and The Yellow Teddy Bears. Yet, despite having an atypical name, the trail has run cold on Mavis. So sorry, she remains lonely, even if it's very unlikely she's still blonde. Interestingly, she was a late replacement in the pilot for another actress from their school, Lynn Dolby. Dolby went on to be a regular in Emmerdale as Ruth Merrick and in Crossroads, and she starred in Budgie with Adam Faith and went on to marry the actor Ray Lunnan, who appeared in Doctor Who in Frontier in Space, but more importantly, starred in Harry's Game and The Sandbaggers. Fit Danny is Brian Thomas. Brian was born on October the 4th, 1947, and got enough work whilst at Corona to pay his school fees. His TV credits included Sykes in 1960, 
William, with perhaps the most successful of his Corona contemporaries, Dennis Waterman, 1962, The Chem Lab Mystery, with fellow Cole Hillers, Cedric Schumann and Heather Lyons, and a couple of episodes of Dixon of Doc Green, plus much uncredited work. His big-screen appearances included working for Disney and Hammer, The Curse of the Werewolf, 1961, and he joined the Royal Court Theatre in 1965 and became Deputy Chief Electrician Engineer, having gained experience in the lighting box whilst at Corona. He became a hugely respected board operator and lit the first night, over a period of seven years, of every Royal Court production. After his stint at the Royal Court, an illustrious theatre, he worked on touring productions of The Phantom of the Opera and Uncle Vanya and was a hugely respected lighting technician who sadly struggled due to early-onset Alzheimer's disease, which wasn't diagnosed for nearly six years, during which he continued to work until he no longer could in 1999. He fought the condition bravely, but died aged just 55 on January the 21st, 2003. And so, the final two. Now, when I first compiled this list, I suspected that no chair Steve was Cedric Showman and Kenneth Williams, Richard Wilson. I also knew that people would want to know about Kenneth Williams. In fact, when I tweeted that I'd hopefully found out all that there was to know about most of the Coal Hill kids, the first tweet in response was, Oh, I hope you found out about Kenneth Williams. Well, thanks, mate, but come on, Richard Wilson? And no, it's not that one. Not... Victor Meldrew, Dr Constantine, Richard Wilson. You surely didn't think, <laughs> I don't believe it. No, he started acting as his real name, Ian Wilson, a couple of years later. So finding an actor called Richard Wilson, who isn't the famous actor Richard Wilson, well, frankly, I was pretty pleased that I found out anything about people with such common names as Brian Thomas and Carol Clark. But Richard Wilson? Oh, come on. In my quest to differentiate No Chair Steve from Kenneth Williams, though, I felt I might have better luck with Cedric Schumann. And I did. I found Cedric, but not even he was confident about identifying which one of the kids was him. Cedric, sadly, has no memories at all of working on Doctor Who. He did a lot of extra work at the time. However, he tells me that Brian Thomas and I were great friends and he introduced me to theatre lighting and as a result I worked in lighting galleries and sunspots up in the auditorium on shows like A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in the Strand Theatre and The Black and White Minstrel Show at the Victoria Palace, amongst many others. Originally from South Africa, Cedric gave up theatre to attend Isleworth Polytechnic at the same time that Freddie Mercury was studying art there. He says that... The 60s was a very exciting time to live in London and I lived on a houseboat near Richmond Lock. He returned to South Africa after getting his A-levels and has lived in Zambia, Australia and South Africa. So, I've had my fair share of adventures, he says. So look, that was pretty good. Despite Twitter expectations, dashing my hopes of pleasing everyone before my ink was even dry. But in the crazy world of Doctor Who, a last-minute rescue based on chance and coincidence 
isn't out of the question. And guess what? When I first released the results of my quest, I had less than 100 subscribers on my Patreon page. That's less than 100 people in the whole wide world of Doctor Who fandom. It would, surely, be a massive coincidence if one of that small, select bunch would be able to help with either of the two Coal Hill kids I'd failed to trace, Mavis Ranson and Richard Wilson. But, as we Doctor Who fans know, nothing is impossible. For since the original instalment of Far Too Much Information, in which I declared it pretty impossible that I'd ever be able to find any details out about the Coal Hill school kid we know as Kenneth Williams, I have found out more about the Coal Hill school kid known as Kenneth Williams. And that's thanks to one of the patrons in that lovely corner of the internet. Who'd have thunk it? What are the odds? There aren't that many, as I say. But over to Rick Byatt, who responded to my assertion that finding an actor called Richard Wilson, who wasn't the famous one foot in the grave and the empty child star Richard Wilson, was going to be pretty much impossible, by letting me know that R. Kenneth was actually Wilson with two L's, and that Rick actually had a few more details, and this led me on quite a journey of discovery. So, Kenneth Williams was indeed Richard Wilson with two L's. It is, unhelpfully, not spelled like this on any of the Doctor Who paperwork. He was born in 1948, and he attended the Corona Stage School in the early 1960s, doing a bit of extra work on TV, commuting in from Enfield, where he lived with his parents. And one of these jobs was in Doctor Who. Kenneth Williams' moment and all. He liked pulling lovely silly faces. He was larger than life, recalls his future wife Sue Wilson, explaining what lay behind his memorable contribution to the episode, adding that he was very good at mime. By the time he was old enough to join Equity as an adult, Richard, Victor Meldrew, Dr Constantine Wilson, was acting, and so the name was gone. Two L's would not be enough differentiation for Equity, so our Richard changed his acting name to Richard Alexander. Alexander was his middle name. Ironically, Victor Meldrew Richard is actually called Ian Wilson with two eyes, but had to change his name because there was already an Ian Wilson, albeit with one eye, on Equity's register. Phew. Anyway, two L's Wilson did get one chance at immortality. Having grown his hair long to do some non-speaking work, another background pupil, in the film To Sir With Love, his distinctive personality and striking mane got him noticed, and he ended up with some lines and a credit, a Richard Wilson credit, and his character was named Curly after his very noticeable Barnet. It was probably the highlight of his acting career, and a gig he spoke of often and fondly. But thereafter, he was Richard Alexander, working in rep up north and managing two TV credits in 1968, an episode of Bernard Braden's comedy B&B and the Cheryl Hall teen sitcom You and the World, both now sadly lost. When he was in his early 20s, it was increasingly hard to get work as an actor, and so he trained as a chef at Bournemouth Technical College, but he ended up doing hotel management instead, preferring the more performative nature of being front of house, which is where he met his wife-to-be, Sue. But he always talked about his acting career very fondly. 
Eventually, Sue and Richard had two pubs outside Henley-on-Thames. He took part in lots of amateur and local performances and he decided to go back to acting when one of their regulars, Simon Williams, who lived close by, got Richard a walk-on part in a play at the mill at Sonning. Now, there are two connections back to the pilot here, of course, because Simon Williams played group Captain Gilmore in Remembrance of the Daleks, which is set, of course, at the same time as events of that first episode that Richard appeared in. And the mill at Sonning's current artistic director is Sally Hughes, who is married to Alvin Rakoff, who at the time of the broadcast of An Unearthly Child was the husband of Jack Lade, Barbara Wright. Now, that millet sonning gig was only a walk-on, but Richard was thrilled to be back in the swing of it. It was his first love and he'd have loved to have gone back to it, says Sue. That was the dream. He just loved performing. Sadly, though, Richard died of cancer in 2002, aged just 53. He wasn't there when Doctor Who hit the 50-year celebrations, says Sue. If he had been, he'd have probably talked more about it. He missed its resurrection, which is sad, because he would have absolutely loved it. He loved being in the limelight, and he loved talking about his acting days. As for his Doctor Who notoriety and the Kenneth Williams moment being known to fans, Richard, says Sue, would be tickled pink. So, since embarking on my crazy task of tracking down the class of 63, I've managed to account for them all, bar Mavis Ranson. Perhaps you know her. If you do, this story of the class of 63 may still have one more chapter. After all, now this quest hasn't just hit the ears of patrons, there is maybe somebody else out there who's mum's best friend, sister's neighbour's auntie's chum, recalls that she was a schoolgirl, being a bit lonely and blonde, in the back of the classroom, in the very first episode of Doctor Who. The elusive Mavis Ranson wasn't the only last-minute replacement, by the way. Cedric Showman came into the pilot after Anthony Rogers was originally booked. Rogers appears as a non-speaking censorite in The Censorites. He wasn't in contention for the role of James Bond when George Lazenby got it, though, that was a different Anthony Rogers, despite what IMDb will tell you. Francesca Bertarelli replaced Linda Harvey, an actress who got a couple of TV credits in 1963-64. But once the kids were in place for the pilot, they were all reused for the ultimate broadcast version of An Unearthly Child. Also at Corona at this time, by the way, was a young man called Fraser Hines. Now, wouldn't that have been a thing if Fraser Hines had been a non-speaking pupil extra in the back of the class in that very first episode of Doctor Who? It wasn't to be. And all that Fraser remembers of this bunch, by the way, is that we all fancied Francesca Bertarelli, which is, frankly, the kind of anecdote in an ever-changing world of flux and disappointment that, comfortingly, you'd expect from Fraser Hines. So... As we celebrate the 58th year of Doctor Who, let's raise a glass to the class of 63. Thank you for listening to Far Too Much Information, Class of 63. 
which was written and presented by me, Toby Hayden. With thanks to Rick Byatt, Sarah Needham, Sue Wilson, Joe Lidster, Jackie Lavicante, Gary Russell, Cedric Showman, Greg Showman, Morris Lane, David Tilly, Malcolm Knight, Mark Campbell, Fraser Hines, Margot Hayhoe, Anthony Inglis, Paul Jericho, and Sarah James. There are accompanying pictures on my website, on my blog, www.tobyhadoke.com, although there's even more visual and reference material on my Patreon page, which I will shamefacedly plug again, patreon.com forward slash tobyhadoke, which you can subscribe to for as little as £3 a month and get advanced releases, exclusive material, and all sorts of other goodies. The music for far too much information has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. These broadcasts would not be possible without the support of patrons, who include Ruben Herfindahl, the Minnesota Doctor Who Tavern Group, Peter Burns, Peter Harness, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, David, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Carrington, Paul Cook, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford Kelk, Chris Phone, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Barry Platt, Edward Salt, Ashley Knight, Stephen Hill, Andrew Egan, John Elledge, Lee Kremen, David Green, Simon Coling, Trevor Smith, Nathan Martin, Hugh Davis, Nord Prefect, Ralph Chilton, Andrew Wilson, Ian Dean, David Trainier, Richie, Jeff Walker, and Ronald Hayden. And just a quick note on top of the Anthony Rogers thing, which is a pernicious internet mistake. Anthony Rogers, as I say, played a sensorite in the sensorites, and you can see all sorts of pictures of him at the time, particularly in Spotlight, where he's a young, fresh-faced lad with big ears. But there is also an Anthony Rogers who is in a photo shoot for the guys who are auditioning to play James Bond alongside George Lazenby. It's a very, very different Anthony Rogers, and don't give me the, oh, they could do loads with makeup in those days. No, not that much, and there would be no reason to do so for that. It's more likely to be the fact that it's a different Anthony Rogers. And yes, I know equity members weren't allowed to share names, but there are all sorts of anomalies along those lines. The other Anthony Rogers could have been a different nationality, a member of the Screen Screen Actors Guild, uh, and our Anthony Rogers, as a juvenile, might not have even got to be a member of adult equity. Look, I'm just right, take it from me, and IMDb isn't. And IMDb will also tell you that Carol Friday died in an air crash. A fairly quick perusal of the internet will tell you that that was a totally different Carol Friday to whom that tragedy sadly occurred. So, as with anything, I'd appreciate you holding back on the I think you'll find messages if all you've done is a cursory glance of what is already out there anyway. I've sacrificed nights out, other work and functioning family relationships to dive really deep into this stuff. So please, trust me. Unless, of course, you know something that the internet, and indeed I don't, about this lovely bunch, in which case I'm happy to be corrected and I'm especially happy 
if you live next door to Mavis Ransom. One final mention of patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. That's where you can go if you want to help to keep these podcasts coming out regularly and enable me to have the time to do the amount of work on them that they require to make them as good as I try to make them to be. Patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Anything from £3 a month or upwards, and if you sign up for a year, you get a 10% discount. If you can't commit to a monthly thing, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, which is somewhere you can do one-off payments of any amount whenever you like if you think I sound needy or look hungry. Thank you ever so much. Any support is, of course, really appreciated. And if you can't support financially, which I totally understand, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and give these a five-star rating and perhaps a couple of lines of review that really helps to improve my algorithms. And if my algorithms are looking good, passing trade will just snap me up. And that's what I need. Thank you. Any way you can spread word about these on social media or elsewhere is hugely, hugely appreciated. But mostly, thanks ever so much for listening. I'm not just Doctor Who guy, you know. I am a stand-up comic and have run a comedy club called Excess Malarkey in Manchester for the past 24 years. And it goes every Tuesday night at 8pm in Manchester. Four or five comedians from the national comedy circuit all glued together by a bit of affable comparing from me. Now, obviously, you don't all live in Manchester. However, we do a monthly online version at twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey there are currently clips and archive shows up there from the huge number of performances that we did during the pandemic where we got comedians from all over the world to do their stuff and as i say we're still going once a month first end of the month twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey it's free at the point of entry although we do encourage donations but again if you can't that's absolutely fine you will still be allowed in. Okay, plugs over, and uh, happy birthday, Doctor Who. Toby, I hear you say, what about the other three extras from An Unearthly Child? The policeman at the beginning and the shadow at the end. What's not three? That's two. Uh, except the policeman in the pilot is a different actor from the policeman in the broadcast version. And yeah, I found out little nuggets about all three men. <laughs> I have. But you'll have to find where I'm talking about those. I'm not going to make it easy for you. (laughs) 